0: Well, as we start a new book of the Bible today, when we look at the book of Philippians, I remember when uh, I'd just become a believer. I became a believer right around my 16th birthday, and I think the first book of the Bible that I just started to devour as a new Christian, I'd probably been a Christian four or five months, was the book of Philippians. I actually found that Bible this morning at my house uh, with all the red underlining and all the stuff in it from when I was 16, 17 years old, and I was Reminded of God's grace in my life in those early months after becoming a Christian, and um, I remember one day reading Philippians during Spanish class. Probably not a good idea, ladies and gentlemen. That's what explained my Spanish grade later on, probably that week. But um, the book of Philippians has had me from the very beginning of my Christian experience. It is just a tremendous book of the Bible, and and one of my fears is books that we that are well loved become very familiar. And when we become familiar with, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, you know, don't let, don't let worry control you. Pour out your heart before the Lord. The peace of God, which transcendent understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There are all these famous verses. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. I'm excited just hearing those verses. That's exciting. It's a great book, but the problem is we can we can become overly familiar with some of these statements. And I hope as we look at it afresh, it will be uh, new to us. It will be sweet. It will be a source of real joy. Um, I'll get to this more in a moment. But you you know this Paul was under Roman house arrest when he wrote the letter. He's essentially in prison, and uh, for a two-year period. And that's almost certainly when he wrote this letter. And the theme of the letter, one of the themes of the letter, is the joy that Paul has in the Lord in spite of his circumstances. And that is something that I desperately need to learn. We, we need to learn uh, to have that joy in the face of adversity. So let's go back to when the story began. Uh, Acts chapter 16, we get this pretty detailed chapter describing the planting of the church in Philippi by the Apostle Paul and Timothy. And so uh, here's sort of what I want to do today, kind of frame this up. We're only going to get two verses into Philippians today. Okay, only two verses. We'll speed up after this week. I'm going to spend most of the time sort of setting the stage and, and getting us ready for the book. But the, the point of the sermon today is this. What God's grace did then in Philippi, God's grace can do today in our lives as a church. What God's grace did then... God's grace can do now to us and through us. And so what we're going to be looking for today as we look at the founding of the church and the introductory words of the letter, we are going to be looking for God's grace on display. And as we see God's grace displayed in powerful ways, we should be encouraged because that grace is available for you today, right now. It's the same God with the same grace And what we see happen in these incredibly powerful stories is reality. And we can participate, and many of us have already begun to participate, in this same grace. So, we're going to be looking at God's grace on display, and we're going to look through chapter 16. This will take several minutes, a good portion of the sermon. And this will be our first point, which is this. God's grace is displayed in the birth of this church. God's grace is displayed in the birth of this church. I'm going to be reading paragraphs and then stopping to comment all the way through the chapter. So this is uh, God's Word, Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, so Luke is with them, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, just start right here. This is encouraging. I really do think this is. They had plans to go to location A, and what happened? door was closed in their face. Then they tried to go to location B, and what happened? The Spirit of Jesus did not let them. I don't even know exactly what that means happened, okay? The Holy Spirit was like, no, nope, not going there. They're like, okay. And then they go to option. The third option, This Paul has this dream, this vision of a man of Macedonia, Philippi is in this region. He says, come and help us. So, so here's, here's an important point for all of us. If we want to see God's grace in our life, we must understand that setbacks, detours, and closed doors are part of how God guides his people for their good. Setbacks, detours, and closed doors are part of how God graciously guides his people for their good. And I'm telling you, we could have testimony time and every person in this room could stand here for half an hour each and talk about closed doors. In their life, I wanted to go option A. I wanted to go here. I wanted to go do this, and God, in His sovereignty, did not let that happen. And it may have been painful when that door shut in our face. And so then we thought, okay, okay, I'm trying to do the Lord's work. Let me go option B. This seems like this is where the Lord wants me to go. Everything seems to be working here, and you you step into that, and there's a red light right? There, there's a, a door is shut and locked. You cannot go through that way. Well, understand something. The church at Philippi was planted and founded by Paul and Timothy and others because they first faced detours from God. So do not think that closed doors in our face, when everything seemed to be heading in a certain direction, do not see that as the absence of God, even though it may feel that way. Do not see that as God being mean or unloving, the Lord is at work in your life when doors close in your face. The Lord is at work in your life. And the Lord is not forgetting us when those moments happen. The Lord has something better for his glory and for your good when a door closes in front of us. Now look what happens next. Verse 11, they follow the new guidance of God. Verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. I have no idea how to pronounce these words. And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. So here it is Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. And from uh, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now just pause there. It doesn't appear that there was even maybe a synagogue in this city. There was just a gathering of some women outside the city near a river. Uh, You can look at archaeological maps of what river it was and where it was. They have all that information in study Bibles that you can see. But they're out there, and they're having this little prayer meeting. My guess is this is not what Paul was expecting when he got a vision from the Lord. He gets this vision from the Lord, a man standing there saying, come and help us. I mean, Paul may have thought he walks in the city, and they're like, here he is. At last, Paul has arrived. Thank you, Lord. I mean, nothing like that. No fireworks, no dramatic reception by the city. Instead, just a small group meeting outside the city gates, Lydia, one of them, This would have been probably a wealthy businesswoman of some kind. She's there, and Paul began speaking to her and the other women with them about the gospel. And look at the middle of verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed over us. So how is God's grace on display here? How can we be encouraged? When we speak to others, I mean, I'm telling you, how many times we're going to talk to people who don't believe what we believe about Christianity, and it feels impossible to convince them. You know what I'm talking about, right? You're having the conversation with the person for the fourth time, maybe for the 15th time, and the eyes sort of glaze over, or maybe the eyes get angrier when, when you talk about it. Uh, they, they maybe start accusing you of things, or perhaps they're just bored with the topic, and it just feels like there's no way I can talk this person into becoming a Christian. It, I can't. I can't do it. I, it's not possible. And here's how we can be encouraged. Paul did not open her heart to give heed to his message. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, I want you to know, when you're having the conversation with the relative, the coworker, you know, the roommate, the friend, the person sitting next to you in class who's not a believer, when you're talking to that person who feels impossible to reach with the gospel, I want to give you bad news first. They are impossible for you to reach with the gospel. The good news is, it is not impossible for God to reach them with that gospel. So as we speak, as helpless as we are, Paul was not some magician who could just influence people. As, as Paul spoke the simple gospel message, what happened? The Holy Spirit made her pay attention. The Holy Spirit opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and she was converted, she believed in Jesus, she was baptized, and those within her influence in her household also believed and were were baptized. And she immediately begins to uh, want to honor the Lord. So we, we need to know there are no impossible people, because the Holy Spirit of God can work on the heart of anyone. Okay, verse 16. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, we do not get more information, so I will grant you this next point is a bit of an assumption that may not be right. I'll grant that, okay? But do we know that she became a believer? We don't know that for explicitly being sure. I don't know for sure, but I'm going to assume it's very likely. That this girl became a believer after this event. It's, it's possible she didn't, but I think the, the chances are very strong that this girl, after having a demon cast out of her, you know in the Gospels, when someone has a demon cast out, they typically follow Jesus in response. And although we don't get the details, I'm going to at least think it is likely that this girl followed the Lord after this event. Either way, this was an act of the Holy Spirit working mightily to free this girl from this horrific kind of slavery and this abuse from these men who were controlling her and using her for money. Look at verse 19, the response of her owners. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they weren't going to make money off of her, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disrupting our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now listen, I just have to say this again, because it's so prominent in Scripture. There there is no way to make Jesus and the true gospel cool to our culture. Not possible. The true gospel cannot be considered genuinely cool or popular if it's truly being taught, because in its heart, we, when we're in the darkness, do not like the light. We hate the light, and the gospel is like that light. And so, when we are going to do acts of grace to others, acts of love. And when we speak truth, we should expect that there will be pushback, animosity. And that is not a sign that we're being unfaithful. That may be a sign that we are being faithful. Paul and Silas are being faithful. They, they get a girl out of slavery and abuse. And what happens? The owners lose their way of making money. And so they attack Paul for fake reasons that they just made up. because so They're not going to say, We don't like them because we're not making money off the slave girl anyway. They're not going to say the real reason, okay? They say a fake reason about the Jewish law, and then they get them beat up with rods and thrown in prison. And so just know, if we are going to live faithfully following Jesus, look how Jesus was treated, look how Paul and Silas were treated, and expect that the world is not going to always warmly welcome those who are faithful. But there is God's grace even in this. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You better believe they were. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now just pause there. I want you to realize something. We, when we face opposition, this is very practical, okay? Whether it's a a small comment at dinner, right? You you know, that kind of opposition, like a little sarcastic jab at your Christianity at at a dinner, in a dinner conversation, or it might be something more direct, something more obvious, maybe physical persecution. Wherever we are on the spectrum, persecution is difficult. And here's what we find here. Paul and Silas, their response to persecution is part of what led to the salvation of their persecutor. Let me say that again. Their response to hostility and sin, their response to that is part of what led that Philippian jailer to faith in Christ. The very man who was chaining them in prison, putting them in stocks in the middle of the prison, that very man is going to help in a minute clean their wounds. And that very man is going to experience salvation. So we need God's grace to give us joy and stability, like they have singing hymns in the middle of the night in stocks. We need that kind of joy that comes from the Lord, not from circumstances, so that when people attack us or treat us wrongly, we're not drawing our supply of joy from how our circumstances are going, but from the, the solid truth of the gospel. Look with me at verse 32 Again. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, And they took them out and asked them to leave the city, the last verse. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, we are seeing God's grace on display in the birth of this church. Just real quick, uh, I'm borrowing some of my outline, some points from Tony Merida's commentary. Here's what uh, Tony Merida says in his commentary. Who do we seek? being greatly affected and impacted here in Philippi. First of all, you have Lydia. She was Asian, she was wealthy, and she was a God-fearer. Not not a believer yet, but she had some respect for the God of Israel. Number two, you have a slave girl. She was a native Greek. She was likely poor, and she was in great spiritual turmoil. Number three, you have the jailer himself, right? He was Roman, I think kind of a blue-collar worker, and he was kind of indifferent to spiritual things until all this happened. Now, Tony Meredith says this, all ethnicities and classes of people can be saved, and people in all types of spiritual conditions can be saved. So do you know some Lydia's? People who have moved to your city because of business or vocation? We have a lot of them probably here even in this city of Athens. How about do you know some people who have experienced torment, whether men or women? Those are people dealing with hurt, abuse, perhaps human slavery, even demonic oppression. They need mercy and counsel and the gospel. Do you know some blue-collar people? Perhaps God will lead you to minister to them. So what we see in Philippi is very different people experiencing God's grace and coming to know the Lord, and that is the beginning of the church at Philippi. So just very different kinds of people, different walks of life, And they are saved, and they are brought together uh, as one church, and that is the birth of the church. Now, turn with me to Acts 28, the last chapter of Acts. All that happens in the early 50s AD, so about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, that church is planted. Now we're going to fast forward 10 more years to the early 60s AD. Paul ends up in Rome. Look with me, Acts 28, verse 16. Acts 28, verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So Paul is here under house arrest, and this is when he wrote the letter of Philippians, very likely. Look at verse 30 and 31. He lived there, this is under house arrest, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That is almost certainly when Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians. So let's turn now to Philippians, finally. uh, Philippians chapter 1. As you're turning there, so we've seen God's grace displayed in the birth of this amazing church with an amazing beginning. I mean, just just picture the early church meetings there. You got the blue-collar, former Roman soldier type guy, right? He's there with his family. So he's got kind of one way of thinking from his background. You got this girl who's been horribly abused in slavery, probably impoverished. She, She very likely is a believer, probably part of the church. You've got Lydia, this businesswoman with a lot of money, Travels around different places trading different kinds of fabrics and things like that. And she's a seller of purple fabrics. So they're all together. That's that's an interesting beginning to a church right there. And this church becomes a church that greatly loves and supports the Apostle Paul. So we're going to look at more grace displayed in the introduction here. The first two verses. Let me go ahead and read them once and then we'll work through them more carefully. If you're anything like me, the introductions of letters, we could just sort of fly past them. I want to slow down and spend several minutes thinking about these verses. So, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so first thing I want to see here is we see grace displayed in the life of the planters of this church. We see grace displayed in the life of the planters of this church. This is point number two. And we see these are Paul and Timothy, right? So let's look again at verse one. Paul and Timothy, what do they call themselves? Servants or slaves, right? Slave servants of Christ Jesus. Now just just stop here. Paul normally will say something about him being an apostle. I don't know if you've noticed that, right? Like, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. With the Galatian letter, he's emphasizing that for purposes uh, having to do with what's happening there. Here, Paul doesn't say a word about being an apostle. And he includes Timothy. Timothy didn't really write the letter. You'll see why as you go. Paul's writing this really by himself. Why does he include Timothy? And why does he call both of them servants, slaves of Christ Jesus? Well, we're seeing the grace of God at work in the life of these planters of this church. See, in this letter, Paul wants to emphasize sacrificial, Christ-like servanthood. That's what he wants to emphasize. Look at chapter 2, verse 7, about Jesus. He emptied himself, Jesus, by taking the form of a servant or a slave, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus became a servant for us. Look at chapter 2, verse 22, or excuse me, verse 19. "'I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ.' But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So you see here, Timothy is a servant. He cares about others' interests more than himself. And so we see God's grace displayed in the servant nature of both Paul and Timothy in this letter. Uh, By the way, I just have to add this part here. I I love to talk about this, but as believers, every believer needs to be someone's Paul, and every believer needs to have a Timothy. So even if you're a relatively young believer, you want to be pouring in on someone who's maybe just become a believer. You want to be pouring into their life, like Paul to Timothy. But we also want to have a Paul. So we're all Timothys, right, in a sense. We we all need a Paul. We all need someone who's been a believer longer, who understands scripture better, who has a life that is consistently lived for the glory of God. We need people older than us pouring into us. And and, I mean, I have an embarrassment of riches in this department. I mean, I have my own dad who's just been an amazing influence in my life in Scott's life and in in many of our lives. Uh, Just growing up with him as a faithful pastor and loving scripture, he has been my Paul since I was really young. And he also gave my middle name, Timothy. So maybe there's something going on there. And um, so my dad's been a huge influence. Um, Jerry Ediger, obviously has been sort of like a dad to me as well, as I've, as I've become a believer. And he's had a huge influence on me for for all of my time as a believer. Papa Fred right here in the room has been a, a father to me, maybe a grandfather to me. So <laughs> A great-grandfather to me. Uh, Papa Fred has been a huge influence on me for years and was critical in a turning point in my life back in the— right around 2010, and uh, uh, Vic Doss as well with, with Fred. And uh, just th- there are all these Pauls in my life that have just been pouring into me for a decade and a half and have a profound influence on me. And Paul calls Timothy his son in the faith, and we need sons and daughters in the faith that we can pour into— and we need to be those who are poured into by others older and wiser than us. I'll just, just throw this out here. If you spend 99% of your time socially with people exactly your age and they have exactly your life experience, you're robbing yourself of something. If you spend almost all your time hanging out with people exactly at your life stage, exactly like you, going through the exact same time of life, that's great. Nothing wrong with that. That's wonderful. But man, we need Pauls in our life. And we need Timothy's. And so let's think about how we can maybe be more strategic in in those ways as believers. But we see the grace of God in Paul and Timothy and the way they serve each other and the way they serve this church. The third point here, we see God's grace displayed in the life of its members. So let's pick back up here with verse 1 again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, depending on your upbringing, maybe you hear the word saint, and you think of like somebody on a stained glass window somewhere, okay? Like, okay, there's like, there's like a few hundred saints in, in human history, maybe, you know. Oh, that's a canonized saint, or this is a certain kind of saint. I, I, I want to just sort of break that up a little bit. The most, if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, the most common word Paul uses to describe believers is he calls them saints. Paul never uses the word Christian that's used in the Bible a couple times by people making fun of believers. You know, it's, it's there in First Peter and in Acts, I believe. But the, Paul loves to call Christians saints. And listen, he's not referring to the level of moral achievement that the people have, have, have achieved. When he calls the Corinthians saints, you guys remember the Corinthians study that we started? Um, yeah, they, they got some problems going on. He's not talking about moral perfection. A saint is anybody who knows the Lord with saving faith. So, so how are you a saint? What does that mean? It means you're holy. You are holy in Christ Jesus. So here, here's the most important thing I can say about anybody on the planet. It's, it's not mainly your p- political beliefs. It's not mainly what you, you know, all these different things that we want to kind of categorize people by. Not that those are unimportant. But the most important thing I can say about you is not you're a Republican or a Democrat. I know it feels like that's the most important thing. The, the, the most important thing I can say about you is you're either in Christ or you are in Adam, the first Adam. Okay, so we are born fallen and sinful in that first Adam, in darkness, in sin. We are lost. We are not saints. We are unholy. We are ungrateful. We are unloving. We are not thanking God or praising God. We are enslaved to the passions of our flesh, and we are dead in Adam. And it doesn't matter what else may be true of someone, if you are dead in Adam, your life may look spotless outwardly, like the Pharisee we heard about earlier from Greg. You, you may have an outwardly nice-looking moralistic life, but if at the core you are dead in Adam, then in eternity we face the consequences for our actions before God's judgment. I, I just, I gotta be careful. I haven't planned to say this, so I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth right now, but I'm not... I, oh. I I just say this, this this doesn't mean we don't think about what's going on in our culture And take steps to be wise and to be as biblically saturated as we can be But I I just want to say, there's a lot of talk about justice today And I want to say this, I'm not saying that conversation doesn't matter And that we shouldn't think through those issues carefully but, But here's what's not being talked about At the end of the day, there is one kind of justice That is going to ultimately and eternally matter And that is the justice of God And whatever happens here, and I'm not saying what happens here is unimportant, we are all going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at his judgment seat, and we are either going to be exposed and naked in our sin like Adam and Eve trying to cover their nakedness in the garden, hiding from God. We're either going to be exposed in our nakedness in Adam with nothing to show but guilt, or we are going to be found as saints in Christ Jesus. And this is not by our moral effort, like, again, Greg so, so wonderfully explained. This is by forsaking our righteousness, saying, I'm not holy. I am broken, sinful, evil. I need the Lord Jesus to save me. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then we are repositioned. We are taken out of Adam by grace, and we are put in Christ. And so right now, if you're a believer, even if you've had a bad week spiritually, even if you're just kind of barely making it spiritually, positionally, you are holy in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean your sin doesn't matter. No, in fact, that's the reason we fight our sin. We must become in practice what we are in position. We are positionally holy. We are saints in Christ. Even when we fail and sin, we are unchanged in our position. We are righteous in Christ, but we must become in practice who we are. Positionally, we must become practically holy because we are counted holy in Christ Jesus. So we see the grace of God displayed in these members here at Philippi, and we can think of ourselves as well. There's one more part to verse one: to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Remember, overseers is a synonym for elders or pastors in the New Testament. Remember that overseer elder, pastor. Three words referring to the same office. And so he says, even from this Philippian church, he's he's drawn out leaders where there are are overseers and there are deacons. Overseers uh, lead and guide the church and do more of the teaching. Deacons work with their hands and take care of physical needs meeting. But he looks at the leadership and probably Paul's saying, listen, you guys, uh, the Philippians need to follow the leadership as they try to deal with some disunity in their church that we'll see later in this letter. So we see the grace of God in, in biblical church leadership. And in verse 2, uh, here's the last part of the sermon, point number 4. We also see God's grace displayed in Paul's Trinitarian blessing. Paul's Trinitarian blessing. Paul can't go two verses without some reference to the Trinity. Uh, look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace. Because we are holy in Christ, we get to experience God's endless, lavish grace. God's grace is not just undeserved favor. It is anti-deserved favor. It's not just that we were innocent. We didn't deserve anything good or bad, and God was gracious to us. No, we deserved the execution that, that we should receive in his judgment, eternal separation from God, But instead, God has given us His Son, the opposite of what we deserve. And God has lavished us with His grace and peace. Peace with God, where once was hostility, and now we get to experience peace subjectively. The the, the very peace of God that He'll talk about in chapter 4 that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Flip it with me to the closing of the letter. Again, these are the two parts that we typically will ignore or just not focus on, but I want to look at the very final greetings of the letter. Paul wraps the letter up with these words, 421. I'm going to start in 419. Paul says, "...and my God will supply every need of yours to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus." To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, not only are we saints in Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we have a new family that has been given to us by God's grace. Now, I know most of us are believers, but if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus today, I want you to know that this offer of the gospel, this offer of being no longer dead in Adam, but alive in Christ, no longer condemned in your sin, but a saint in Christ Jesus, this offer is on the table for you right now. And you don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to go into the temple and recite all your good deeds for the week, the month, the year, the decade. All you have to do is have nothing in your hand, which is maybe the hardest thing to have spiritually. Come before God and say, God, I have nothing to offer. All I have is need, need for forgiveness, need for grace, need for peace, need for restoration. I have need for washing and cleansing. I've got nothing to offer. I need you. And when we turn from self and sin and put our faith in Jesus, we can find ourselves taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And it can happen in a moment. Everything changes. We haven't earned any of it because God's grace and peace have been lavished on us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we think about Lydia and we think about this girl who had been abused and enslaved, we think about this blue-collar worker, this perhaps a former Roman soldier, the Philippian jailer, we also think of him at the point of suicide when he meets the Lord Jesus. He pulled out his sword and was planning to throw himself down on it when Paul spoke to him and he heard the gospel. Lord, the gospel is not for one ethnic group, it's not for one class, it's not for moralistic types. The gospel is for all who are fallen and dead in Adam, which is everyone by natural birth. And God, I pray that you would encourage us, the same grace that saved Lydia and opened her heart, the same grace that delivered this girl from demonic oppression, the same grace that saved this near-suicidal Philippian jailer, this grace that saved us is available. It's available to all who will willingly receive it by faith. So God, do pray that you would use us when doors have closed, when people feel impossible to reach, Remind us that your grace is available to be worked in us and through us for our good, for the good of others, and ultimately for your glory. And Lord, I pray in the midst of these troubled times in our culture, show our country, show our world, that the only ultimate answer to so much of what plagues us, to all the things that truly plague us, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and I pray this in his name, amen.